the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. God wanted to bring the children of Israel from the desert to the land promised to their forefathers. The Israelites had witnessed God's mighty hand to save, but they still chose to complain and doubt God's goodness and His ability to keep His promises. God sent judgment because of their unrepentant, disbelieving hearts. Now we will see that even Moses' own siblings began to question his leadership as we join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Numbers, I mentioned when we first introduced the book, its corresponding New Testament book is 1 Corinthians. You know, you have two areas of of immaturity. You have this generation that's in the flesh and they're not really journeying with the Lord like they should. And, you know, we learn a lot of lessons from there. Same thing with 1 Corinthians. They're an immature church, not really walking with the Lord like they should because they needed to grow. And so as we are here in Numbers chapter 12, we're smack dab in the middle of this journey with the Lord. Um, and, and they've had some issues. Israel has made two stops on their journey to the promised land, and they've had two problems. They stopped in a place called Tebera, which means burning, and, and I guess because God sent burning upon them because of just a general complaining against the Lord. Why are we stopping here? Promised land's only a few days away. Why are we stopping? You know, why are we in the desert still? And then at Kibroth Hata'avah, God sent a plague because of their ungrateful lusting. But, you know, we miss the leeks and the, and the garlic and the cucumbers back in Egypt. Well, now they have stopped in Hazaroth, the third of their four stops before they get to the edge of the promised land, and another problem arises. But this one is a bit more personal in regards to Moses. And so as we study it, may we learn the lesson of Miriam so our journey with Jesus isn't interrupted by this very same problem. So chapter 12, verse 1. And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. I have to confess, I always read through my text and then I'm going to teach on and then you, you know, you, you kind of take some notes and some personal applications and stuff and then you get into start digging and, and when I got into start digging was right after everything happened up north. My first thought was, God, you've set me up because it's very applicable to our, our current situation in our nation. We just go through the Bible. So if you're visiting with us tonight, I did not pick this text. This is the text that we were just in. And I think it's highly appropriate to our current atmosphere and our culture. We see here that Miriam and Aaron, they speak against Moses. But we have to really understand what's going on here because Miriam is the ringleader here. Her name is listed first, suggesting she's the instigator. But it's, it's more apparent when the phrase here, spoke against, comes in. That is a feminine verb in the Hebrew, which means she's the one doing the speaking. So she is the ringleader here, even though Aaron is by her side. Well, what's her beef? She speaks against Moses because of his wife. What's wrong with his wife? 
Well, because she was an Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now, we think of Ethiopia as a nation. There was no Ethiopia back then. There was a place called Cush, and that's what this means. She was a Cushite. Cush was the ancient kingdom of Nubia. It was the kingdom south of Egypt. And the word Cushite or Cush means land of the dark-faced. So the question is, well, I thought Zipporah is a Midianite. So did Moses have a second wife? Well, he has to, right? Well, there's never any indication Moses took a second wife or that he had two wives at the same time. Nor is there any indication he ever remarried after Zipporah died or that Zipporah ever died before him. We do need to recognize that Moses was over 80 years old by this time. So it's very possible that Zipporah had died and he had remarried. Possible, but not likely. See, Cushite had another way that it was used. It was used as a racial slur. And it's more likely that Zipporah just had very dark skin compared to the Israelites. And it's likely that Miriam used this slur to describe her. And I say that because it says, for he had married in the past. This was the wife that he had married. Remember, she didn't know who Moses married. She didn't know who Moses married until he came back to Egypt. We're only a year removed from that point. She has no clue who Moses' wife is until he comes back to Egypt a year ago. So it is very unlikely that anyone else is in mind here except for Zipporah. And if that's the case, then Miriam is using this word as a racial slur. Miriam is so very wrong in doing that for so many reasons. A person's skin tone isn't a moral attribute. It is not an indicator of advanced or diminished intellect or moral fiber. You can never, ever say that about someone because of their skin tone, whatever it may be. You can't say, well, they're better because they're white, or they're better because they're black, or they're better because they're brown, or they're better because they're Hispanic, or they're better because they're red, or whatever you want to call it, you know? You cannot say that. You say, how can you say that, Pastor Will? Very clearly. First off, every person that is born is born with a sin nature. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, every person is disposed to evil. None of us are predisposed to good. We all have a moral deficiency, every single one of us. There is no good race or good people group. Secondly, every person is made in the image of God. So we all have his law written in us. So all of us have the capacity to know what is right and what is wrong. There is no way that you can ever biblically prove that there is any cultural background, any racial background, any skin tone that comes with any inherent deficiencies or inherent advantages. It is 100% against the biblical text. It is absurd to think or teach anything otherwise. And lastly, every single person is created by God individually, personally, which means our intellect, our emotions, and our personality come from him. You cannot fault someone and say, well, you have this skin tone, so you're worse because they're just predisposed to this personality or this disposition. Or we're better because they're predisposed this way. That is nonsense. I've always said, there's only one person who could marry me because there's only one person who could put up with me. But that's because there's only one person who's like me. (laughs) You know, there's no one else like me. I bear resemblances to my father and my mother and those on the side of my family, but I am none of them. We've had conversations with our kids at times and we'll talk to them about things. We'll say, you know, yeah, you you look like me in this way or you have this attribute that I might have, but you're also your your own unique person. God designed you uniquely different than me and mommy. And and so you, you you are special because he specifically made you with all the little intricacies that make you who you are. So none of those things can be inherently bad or evil or better or good. 
do our cultural or our family or our society surroundings impact how our personalities, our will, our intellect are shaped? Surely. But none are ingrained in your skin tone. And if you believe otherwise, you are just as guilty as Miriam is here. If you believe otherwise, you are in sin. You contradict scripture and you need to repent. I cannot be clearer about this. I cannot be clearer about this. We should love everyone and look at everyone, every single individual as someone who matters by God. One of the things that God took issue with with the nation of Israel is how they treated the fatherless and the widows, those who were downtrodden. He was upset because people took advantage of them. We need to be compassionate people. Turn to Romans 1. Now, God in Romans 1, we we call this the downgrade. It talks about how mankind has chosen to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What happens when man does that is God gives them over to acting or behaving a certain way to get their attention. If I'm going to be stubborn against the Lord, the Lord's going to say, fine, if that's how you want to live, you got it. But then he allows us to reap the consequences of that so it gets our attention. And, and when we don't listen to that, he allows us to go even further down that dark road in our own lives. And so he describes what the end of that culture looks like where people are rejecting God and doing their own thing. Describes it here, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, a debased mind. The idea is one, you cannot distinguish between right and wrong anymore. To do those things which are, King James says, not convenient, but it just means things that are wrong, things that are not right. And then it describes what those things are. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, and the idea of not being compassionate towards others, covenant breakers, breaking their promises, without natural affection, not being able to look at your fellow man and just having compassion, implacable, unmerciful. We read that and we go, hey, that kind of seems to describe our culture. In many ways, yes. But here's the message the church needs to hear, and it's verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God and that they which do such things are worthy of death, not only do the same things, but they have pleasure in them that do them. The word there, have pleasure, it means to approve of. Listen. If you're going to support racism in any way, shape, or form, if you're going to support that in in your own life, that's sin. That's what we've already mentioned. But this takes it a step further. If you're going to support those who believe such things, for whatever reason and whatever other common ground you might think you have or find with them, if you're going to support that, you are equally guilty. You are equally guilty. We live in reprobate times. Let us not contribute to them, church. We need to shine as lights. I was appalled at some of the things I heard people say, you know, that I saw Christians, people I knew that claimed to be born again, and what they said. Listen, you can say everything you want about freedom of speech. You can say everything you want about the American ideal and whatever. I get all of that. But if you're ever going to stand behind in any way, shape, or form and support people who support wickedness, you are wrong. You are not walking in righteousness. There is no way. There are no good people at a rally that talk about people who are not white in a negative way. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? 
There are no good people there. I don't care if you don't believe that and you're there for different reasons. If you are standing with those people, you are doing what First Romans chapter 1, verse 32 says, and that is wicked. I want to keep myself as far away from people that believe those things and say those things and stand those things. Have you ever? You know, we, we get this idea sometimes in the United States that the American ideal is biblical. Do you realize there will not be freedom of speech in the millennial reign? Do you understand that? There will not be, <laughs> all right? That, like people who don't like Jesus are not going to be able to print it in the news, all right? People that don't like the way God's doing things are not going to be able to rally and protest, all right? They're not going to be able to do that. So this idea that we have in our nation, it works for us, and I think it's a good ideal. But do you realize that it also allows voices who say wicked things to have voice? And while in our country, I'm glad we have that freedom, we need leaders who will come up and stand up and say, that is wicked, and anyone who stands with them is wicked. And we don't have that right now. We haven't had it for a long time. You say, but Will, there are, there are wicked and racist people who are on, on the other side of that viewpoint. Yes, there are. But let me tell you something, church. You don't have to support one group of wicked people or those who support those wicked people to stand against another group of people who are standing for wickedness. Righteousness, the Bible says, exalts a nation. Righteousness exalts a, 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 a nation. But wickedness is a reproach to any people. And all I could think of this week was wickedness abounds. You cannot claim to be righteous when you stand with wicked people. When you do so, you are no longer righteous. You can't. Now, some suggest here that Miriam was critical because Moses had married a non-Jew, non-Israelite. You cannot do that, Moses. Hold on a second. The Bible does not teach that. God never told the Israelites that. This isn't a problem because the only people group that God forbade them from marrying was the Canaanites. Zipporah is not a Canaanite. She is a Midianite. The Bible has no prohibition of interracial marriage because technically there is no such thing. There is one race descended from Adam. So there is no such thing as interracial marriage. Now, do we have marriages between people of different skin tones? You bet. And the Bible has absolutely zero anything to say negative about it. You say, but what about those Canaanites, Will? That's a prohibition. And it actually came before Israel went to the promise. And it was there during Abraham's time. You're right. Well, then doesn't that mean that God has always been against interracial marriage? <laughs> no. God forbade marriage with the Canaanites for very clear reasons. Turn to Deuteronomy 7. God could not have been clearer here. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. And when the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you go to possess it and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Seven nations which are greater and mightier are larger than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, shall smite them and utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Neither shall you make marriages with them. Why? Your daughter you shall not give unto your son, nor his daughter shall you take unto your son. For they will turn away your son from following me, that they may serve other gods. Did it have anything to do with the fact that they were Canaanites? No. It had to do with the fact that these people were so far gone spiritually, they were killing their own children. The Lord said, you cannot intermarry with these people because they'll turn your heart away from me and you'll do wicked things. Now, guess what? Israel did that and what happened? They went into idolatry and did those things. But it had nothing to do with the fact that they were Canaanites, you know, of a different race or a different people group or a different skin tone. And you know what's fascinating to me when you look at the scripture? Do you realize that God made exceptions for Canaanites who came to him in faith, one ended up being in the line of the Messiah. 
You know, in Matthew chapter one, it has that long list of the line of Jesus. It says, and Abraham begat begat so-and-so, and then it goes all the way down to David, and it goes from David all the way down to Jesus, right? There are four women in that list, right? Who's one of those women? It's really interesting. Matthew one, verse four, her name is Rahab. She's got a couple interesting things about her. Number one, she's a harlot, right? She's in the line of Messiah. Secondly, she's from Jericho. She's a Canaanite. Jesus is from an interracial marriage. Maybe you didn't ever think of that before. And not just one, but two, two. Because Rahab, she gave birth to a son named Boaz. And who did Boaz marry? A Midianite, Ruth. Jesus is the product of two interracial marriages. So if you've got a problem with interracial marriage, you've got a problem with Jesus. I'm just saying, you've got a problem with Jesus. I've always wondered why Boaz so readily married a Moabite when the scriptures forbid them from ever being allowed to worship in the tabernacle. And you know why I think he did? It's because his mother was a Canaanite and God made an exception with her because she was a believer. And so I believe he knew God would make an exception with Ruth too because she was a believer. Isn't that awesome? God didn't do it because they were Canaanites. He did it because they were wicked and he wanted to stop the wickedness. If you have a problem with interracial marriage, you need to repent as well because your belief doesn't match with the one you claim to worship. We are still in numbers, by the way. If this were only an issue of prejudice, we could move on. But we have to deal with the fact of who they're critiquing. Who are they critiquing? They're critiquing the leader, right? Moses. And in the 30 years of, my my view, 30 years of following Jesus, I have seen people attack a pastor or an elder, but it seems like they more viciously attack their wives and their kids. Do you see what she's wearing? Pastor's wife shouldn't wear that. Who does she think she is? Or you're a pastor's kid, you should know better. Listen, you try that on my kid and I will probably not be a pastor anymore. Don't ever say that to my kids. I have never said that to my kids and I never will because they're my kids. And before they're anything, they're just kids. (laughs) Or you hear people say all the time, oh, you know pastor's kids. Can I give you some advice? Treat the kids of church leaders like every other kid because they're like every other kid. Treat their wives like you treat any other lady at church. They're already on the front lines because of what their husbands do. The enemy's already hitting them a little bit harder. They've already been wounded by people with unrealistic expectations. Could you imagine what it was like for Zipporah? Moses comes home and, Moses, what's wrong? I'm just upset. What happened? I got an argument with, you know, my sister. What's wrong with your sister? Well, you have dark skin. Zipporah, could you please change your skin tone? That's unrealistic, isn't it? It's absurdly unrealistic. But I see people have the same unrealistic expectations for the family of leaders at times. Those people, those kids, those wives, they need people who love them unconditionally, just like you need people who love you unconditionally. Someone who will love them and expect nothing in return for doing so. That you love them and expect nothing back because why love them? I was nice to them, you know? Because that's just what you need as well. Can you imagine how devastated Moses must have been? I mean, he's, he's just come, he's just left the graves of lusting. You know, that was not exactly a happy place. And before that, he'd been at burning. He'd seen death and despair. And now his own family and his closest assistants are turning on him. And what's funny is her complaint about Zipporah is not even the real problem. Look at verse two. And they said, hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? Miriam begins to critique his leadership. The word there indeed indicates a rhetorical question in the Hebrew, which means the implied answer is no. Hath the Lord only spoken by Moses? And what her answer is, no, he has not. And of course, we see that in her next statement. Has he not also spoken by us? The rhetorical is, yes, he has. God only using you, Moses? God used us too. 
Now, that was true. Aaron was Moses' spokesperson in Egypt, remember? Moses said, well, Lord, I don't talk very well. And he said, well, fine, let Aaron be your mouthpiece. So when Moses would speak to Pharaoh, it wasn't him saying it, Aaron would say it. When Moses would speak to the nation of Israel in Egypt, it wasn't Moses that did it, it was Aaron that did it. He was his spokesperson. So Aaron had been used by God as a mouthpiece. Exodus 15, verse 20 calls Miriam a prophetess. And it shows that she led the women in worship. So God had spoken through them. God had used them in that capacity. But what's her problem? Well, see, her problem was she felt diminished somehow by Moses. Now, why would she feel that way? Well, Moses is the baby brother, of course. I can't imagine it would be easy to see your baby brother rise higher than you. Miriam had saved his life, right? She probably could think all the time, man, he wouldn't even be here today if it weren't for me. She had, she had saved his life. She'd been responsible for him being weaned by their mother. And Miriam, she probably felt like she was owed something better than her current lot, that there was some payback coming her way. But what would make this jealousy bubble over now? I mean, they're almost to the promised land. You know, can't you relax for a bit, girl? Well, remember what happened in chapter 11 when the people complained and wanted meat? What did Moses say? I can't do this, Lord, right? That's too much for me. So what did God do? In chapter 11, he said, choose 70 men, I'm going to take of, you know, the, the anointing I've put on you, I'm going to put it on these men so they can share the load. And God did that. This comes right on the wings of that. So what would make her jealousy bubble over the surface now? Well, before chapter 11, Moses taught the nation, Miriam led the women, Aaron led in worship. They had very clear uh, visual leadership roles that were divided between just three people. Three people, that's very easy to have a visual, you know, amongst the people. But now, all of that influence is shared with 70 other people. Her influence, from a visual perspective, is quite diminished. Perhaps they saw themselves diminished by Moses' decision, even though it wasn't Moses' idea, it was God's idea. Maybe they felt diminished by his decision. Perhaps they thought Moses should have given them some of that responsibility instead of putting it on these 70 guys. And you know, this kind of shows in a backwards kind of way how all complaining is ultimately against God, right? It was God's idea, not Moses' idea, but they didn't know that. And so they complained to him. But ultimately, all complaining is against God. And that's how God took it. For it says, they're having this argument or this, not argument, I should say, they're making their complaint to Moses. And what does it say? And the Lord heard it. The Lord heard it. Before we get into... God's response here. Well, let's examine what the two critiques were. Moses, your wife's skin is too dark and God left us out of his plan to alleviate your burdens. How's Moses supposed to fix those things? Like, how do you fix those problems, those critiques? Like, how do you go, okay, well, I'll start working on that. We'll get a cream and we'll start working on her skin tone. How do, you can't fix that. These are not critiques really against Moses. They're against the Lord. And you know, leaders frequently find themselves in those situations. People often come to me for biblical counsel. And I tell them what the Bible says, but then they don't like it and they get mad at me. And then they leave the church and they tell other people that I'm controlling, unkind, or legalistic. I have to be frank with you. I am human. And when I hear critiques like that, I think, I didn't schedule the appointment. I didn't go to you. (laughs) You came to me. I did not wake up in the morning and decide to give John Doe a hard day. Let's see how miserable I can make so-and-so. I'm going to tell them that that's sin that they're in. That is never my heart or my goal. If someone's going to come to me and say, I need counsel on this. If you're expecting me to serve you before I serve the Lord, you are setting yourself up for major disappointment. Major disappointment. 
because it's not my job to serve you before I serve the Lord. I had one lady one time, she came to me and and I won't give you all the details, but she wanted me to do something. And I said, well, I don't really think I can do that. I don't find it to be in line with the scripture. She said, you know, that that just gets me here. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, you're a pastor. You're supposed to love people. I said, ma'am, I said, I did not come to you and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong and you need to change. You came to me and asked me to bless what you're doing. And I said, I couldn't do that because what you're doing goes against scripture. Are you asking me to be more loyal to you than I am to the Lord? She said, well, everything in the Bible is not correct. And I said, okay, now we've got a problem. (laughs) I said, you have come here with the expectation that I serve you before I serve the Lord. And I just, I told her very plainly, I said, I will never do that. And if you have a problem with that, I make no apology. I make no apology to that. Don't do that. (laughs) If you're going for counsel, really just be open and receive from the Lord. And don't have expectations that a leader here is here to serve you before they serve the Lord. They want to serve you, but it's as they serve the Lord, not before they serve the Lord. All mankind is born in the image of God. This is the doctrine of Imago Dei. There is no person better or greater than another. We are all equal in God's sight. We are to have this mind that Christ had when he was on the earth, that being completely equal with God, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, according to Philippians chapter 2. Love others as Christ loved. This is what Jesus told us to do. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.